Law language like you shall and you shall not demands our obedience, but promise language demands our faith. Obey this commandment and I will bless you. That's law language. But God says to Abraham, I promise to bless you, so believe my promise. And then after you believe, obey. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, The Religion That God Hates, from Romans chapter 4. In yesterday's study, we saw certain individuals in the first century were seeking to undermine the message of the gospel by adding certain religious rites, such as circumcision, to the plain message that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Dr. Brogy noted that those who used the argument that Abraham was circumcised and that it was that action that the Old Testament said was credited to him as righteousness, fail to see that Abraham's salvation is seen in Genesis chapter 15, and it isn't until Genesis 17, 15 years later, that he gets circumcised. In today's study, we'll see that although religious rites do not confer righteousness, they do confirm righteousness. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins reading from Romans 4, Verse 11. And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while circumcised. Paul reminds us here in verse 11 that circumcision didn't save him. It was only the sign and it was the seal of what he had believed. And notice both descriptions because they're not the same. Circumcision is both the sign and it is the seal. Now, God said when he spoke to this man about circumcision initially, in Genesis 17, he called circumcision the sign of the covenant. It was a sign that identified him, but it was also a seal that authenticated him. A sign points to something. That's what a sign does, whereas a seal, in essence, is uh, guaranteeing something. And I want you to think about the difference. We're going to say this morning, like circumcision, baptism, is both a sign and a seal. Let me see if I can explain. I have a lot of diplomas hanging on my walls. If you go into my office, I, I didn't have them there for years. And then one of the brothers in the church, Ron Vogel, I said, you need to hang your diplomas up. I said, they've been sitting in a, a box since I, I had them for nearly 20 years. And he took them all, framed them all, and there they are on my wall. He said, it looks good as a pastor. I said, okay, there they are. Now, think about the words on the diplomas. And you've got some diplomas. The words on the diploma represent the sign. But on each of my diplomas, there's also a seal. And the seal authenticates what's there. Now, people today can manufacture their own diplomas. And people do that. Do you know that? They call themselves Dr. So-and-so. And and Dr. So-and-so isn't Dr. So-and-so. And he's created a diploma and he's used fancy printing and everything. But there's no seal. There's no seal authenticating it as something that is genuine. And so Paul wants us to understand that there is the sign and there's a seal. Now think about if I had a diploma on my wall that was blank and all it had was the seal on it. What would it authenticate? Absolutely nothing. People all the time, they have the 
a seal, but they don't have the sign. They say, I've been baptized, but they've never trusted Jesus as their Savior. That's like having a, a blank diploma with a seal on it. Now understand, there is a parallel between in our day, and this would be by way of application, between baptism and circumcision, and that both are really symbolic. In the early church understood this. They understood that, that baptism was simply our confession of faith. Peter says in Acts 2.38, for instance, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, in English, this verse is a challenge. It's not a challenge in Greek, and it's really not a challenge in most other languages of the world. Because most other languages of the world have enough words to use a different word than this word for. But in English, the word for can mean different things. It can mean because of or in order to, and some people read it in order to repent and let each of you be baptized in order to receive, in essence, the forgiveness of your sin. Uh, I, I was speaking to a man who said he was an elder of a large church in Savannah, and he told me that I was preaching less, a less than pure gospel, that I was in error because I did not teach my people that baptism was necessary in order to be saved, that I said it was simply a symbol, an emblem, and he quoted Acts 2.38 to substantiate his opinion. And very often, there's a denomination in our country, it's called the Christian denomination, so so-and-so Christian church. Doesn't always mean they're a member of that denomination, but there's a whole pool of churches across America that carry that emblem, and this is one of them just like the Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ. Now, there's exceptions to the rule, but very often these churches teach that baptism is necessary in order for you to be saved, that you receive the benefits of the cross of Christ only in if you are baptized. Therefore, if you are not baptized, you're not saved. By the way, the same teaching of the Judaizers in the first century. Read the book of Galatians. You read Galatians and you discover that they taught a man was saved by grace through faith by the blood of Christ. But you could only come in contact with the blood of Christ if you were circumcised. And so they were asking the, the, the Gentiles to be circumcised. Uh, there's a very popular book now that has hit evangelical bookstores across the nation that uh, a lot of Christians are reading but it's written by a pastor who actually teaches baptism saves. Uh, let me um, just quote from his own doctrinal statement. He said, We believe the Bible teaches that one receives God's grace by putting faith in Christ, repenting of sin, confessing Christ, and being immersed into Christ, which in the doctrinal statement is a reference to baptism. And he quotes Acts 2.38 in Romans 6, which we're going to study, which has absolutely nothing to do with water baptism. It has everything to do with spirit baptism. And so this statement reflects what's known as baptismal regeneration. Now, I absolutely, with all of my heart, with every fiber that is in my body, I reject baptismal regeneration. That baptism helps save you or somehow confers to you the benefits of the cross. And I reject it because if someone preaches that, they are guilty of preaching a different gospel. Now, baptism, like circumcision, was important, but it had nothing to do with salvation. And the scriptures speak on their own. When Paul 
wrote to the Corinthians, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. A few verses later in verse 17, he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now granted, the passage is dealing with division in the church. However, Paul could not possibly say what he said if baptism helped save you. He would never say if baptism helped to save you, I'm thankful that I did not baptize anyone. He would never say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, if baptism were necessary for salvation. If baptism was necessary for salvation, then Paul would have to say, I am thankful that you were not saved. He would have to say, for Christ did not send me to preach salvation, but he did. And in that same epistle, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he defines what the gospel is, and that's important because the gospel is the power of God to save you, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, period. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. He separates it from the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, there are people today, they look Christian, they smell Christian, they're nice people. But understand, anyone who teaches that baptism saves or helps saves is preaching another gospel. And as we will see, they come under the curse of Galatians 1. It is a different gospel. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, let's look at Acts 2.38 because they use it all the time. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For, the Greek uh, conjunction there is ace. For the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what does this little word for mean? Does it mean in order to? No, it means because of. And there are other examples in the Greek New Testament where the same little particle is used where it precisely means that and you can't debate it to mean anything else. For instance, Jesus said in Luke 11, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented, ace, at the preaching of Jonah. Same little preposition. They repented, not in order, but because of the preaching of Jonah. That's the thought. It is a causal. And if you think about it, the word for in English can carry the same meaning. A, a man is arrested for stealing. One is commended for his bravery. Another person is blamed for his forgiveness. Peter said, repent, let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Not in order to be forgiven, but because you are forgiven. And again, it is a confession of the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus said in Matthew 10, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. The early church understood that if someone inwardly possessed salvation, they would be willing to outwardly confess it before men. While religion is a private thing, Christianity in the sense that only you can make the decision, it becomes very public, Jesus taught. So much so that in Mark 16, 16, and I'm using the hard verses that they use out of context, Jesus said, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. They'll say, there it is, right there. Believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. Therefore, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Now, if Jesus was teaching baptism saved, the verse would read like this. He who has believed and is 
been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned. But the Lord never says that because salvation is based on your faith and it's your disbelief that condemns you. You could kind of paraphrase it in this sense in the, new, in the first century understanding. You could read the verse in this sense. He who has believed and who has publicly identified with me. Why? Because an inward possession results in an outward confession. He who has believed and has outwardly confessed me before men. How did they do that in the first century? Not by walking an aisle but by being baptized. And he who disbelieved shall be condemned. And so by symbol, when one is baptized, we are confessing the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so like a, a signpost, what we are saying is, I have uh, placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I... Um, uh, was working on a doctorate, you know, you, you spend, a, it's a, like a three-year program, and then you write this dissertation, and then you can go through all of that, and then you have to defend your dissertation. And if when you defend your dissertation, it's not defended well, wasted three years. It happens. It's kind of a scary thing. So I'm there in, in, you know, in prayer and fasting and shaking, and God, God helped me to defend this, because the people that I was defending it to at the time in the seminary I was attending was going moderate to liberal. And the Southern Baptists had not yet cleaned up this seminary. And there were some people there who did not like me. And so I defended my dissertation and by the grace of God, because of one particular man who was on that board, he said, you may differ with Mr. Brogy on a lot of these issues, but these are local church issues, and we as Baptists believe in the autonomy of the local church, so you cannot use this as a basis for condemning his dissertation. We must grant him approval, and they did. So they said, you are now Dr. Brogy. Now, I was Dr. Brogy at that moment, but it was about three weeks or a month later, I don't remember exactly, that I walked in aisle, and they handed me a diploma, and we took our tassels and we turned them and they said, you know, all the rights of this institution are now confirmed on you. And they gave me that diploma with a seal on it. And that followed. And the same is true with salvation. First you are saved. First Abraham believed. 14 years later, he was circumcised. That's the argument here. And the same would be true with baptism. Let me put it in these terms. Look at this ring on my finger. This ring is an emblem that I am married. Now, if I wore a ring without being married, you'd say, why are you married? The ring doesn't marry me. God marries people. What God has joined, Jesus said, let no one separate. It's just an emblem. Now, raw as it may sound, there are people who will climb into bed with someone to whom they are not married with, married to, wearing the ring. What does the ring symbolize in that sense? Nothing. Just a, a tarnished piece of steel or gold or whatever your ring is made out of. You see, God doesn't look just at the symbol. God looks at the heart. That's what Paul's argument here. Abraham was not righteous by his circumcision. His circumcision was just the sign and the seal of what God had done in this man's life. It was a sign in that when you went through that bloody little rite, as he did as an adult man, he was confessing his faith in the sufficiency of the blood that would be shed through Messiah. It was the seal, it was the confirmation, the authentication that his faith 
was genuine. Now look at verses 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. That is to say, he was saved before he was circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, he's the father of believing Gentiles who have never taken this right to their male bodies, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision, verse 12, to those who, are not, who not only are of the circumcision, that is naturally born Israelites, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That is true Jews, Jewish Christians, who like Abraham have exercised genuine faith. Again, this is identical to what Paul has already argued here in chapter 2. Now, don't lose me. This is the meat of the word. And I know I can see some of you just fading. You're just, you're losing it. Listen, gird up your loins for action. Even if you don't get it all, get all that you can. This is the meat of the word and, and God wants you to get it. Abraham's first step was faith which led to his conversion. His second step was not internal, but external. It was circumcision. It was on the outside. It was simply the sign and the seal. Now, that's the first point the morning, this morning, the folly of trusting in religious rites. Now, the second will go a little bit faster. Let's look at verses 13 to 15, where we think about the folly of trusting in religious rules. Having shown the, the folly of trusting in religious rites, symbols, emblems, so forth, he now moves to the folly of trusting in religious rules. Paul knows that there would be people who would either look to their circumcision or to their obedience as a basis for their being made right in God's sight. Note first that God's promises for salvation have to do with belief. That's the first thing I want you to get in this section, that God's promises for salvation have to do with belief or with faith. Now, beginning in verse 13, he teaches us that the promise that God made to Abraham was not in any way, shape, or form contingent on his obedience to the Mosaic law. That this salvation that God gave to Abraham had absolutely nothing to do with the do's and don'ts of the Mosaic law. Again, he's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get us to think. He says, just think about it. It didn't have anything to do with the law. Why? Well, number one, the Mosaic law didn't yet exist. Moses comes 250 years after Abraham. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants like you and I and other Jews who believe, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul is drawing a sharp contrast. Not this, but this. Not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So he's no longer now just asking questions and answering them like he's done in the early part of this chapter. He's just spelling it out plain and bluntly. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, what promise is he referring to? The one he quoted in verse three and the one he quoted in verse nine in shorter form, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Going back to Genesis 15, that Abraham believed in the coming savior of the world that that promise was given to him, it was conferred to him, not on the basis of his obedience to the law. That is not what made him an heir of the world. By the way, this is a little bit different. Here he's called the heir of the world. You go back and you read Genesis 15 through 17, and God makes a promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant concerning a land of seed and a blessing. 
And the land, in terms of its geographical boundaries, are very carefully spelled out in Scripture. People ask me today, do you think the Jews should uh, abandon or give up half of Jerusalem? Absolutely not. Why? Because God gave it to them. Now, the Bible prophesies in Zechariah 14 that through a war, that city is going to be split in two. And after that happens, Messiah will come and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And that people are even talking about that today is absolutely astounding because this is what the prophet Zechariah centuries ago predicted. But people ask me, do you think that's their land? Absolutely. Should they be compassionate to the Arab in the land? Absolutely. Because God reminds them that they are to be compassionate, that they once too were aliens in a land, and they needed compassion. And so he tells them that they are to show compassion to the alien and the stranger in the land, which I believe they are trying to do. But now he says, you're not just heir of the land, you're heir of the world. Why? Because Abraham is directly related to Christ. And so as the time unfolded, God made all kinds of prophecies concerning Christ. Isaiah 9, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Or in Psalm 2, the father said of his son, ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so if you are of the faith of Abraham, if you have believed in the same Savior that Abraham has believed in, then you too, like Abraham, will be an heir of the world because the Bible extends that promise to every believer. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. Paul writes to the Corinthians, all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And when we come to Romans chapter 8, he will say every believer is a co-heir, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. That we will inherit all that the Father gives to Jesus because we are members of his body. We are going to study. We're going to inherit those blessings. So having clarified what the promise is, Paul now underscores here that this word that came to Abraham didn't come as a command, but as a promise. Follow carefully. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham came in faith. He believed the promise, and so faith was credited to him as righteousness, at which time he became heir of the world. Now, don't forget what he's trying to do in this chapter. He's reminding us that the message he is preaching is not something new. It's as old as the Old Testament, as old as the law and the prophets. And that this man received what he did because it was not something that God said, do this and you'll get it. God said, believe it and you'll inherit it. And so God's promises come on the basis of faith. Secondly, God's precepts after we're saved have to do with behavior. God's promises for salvation have to do with belief. God's precepts after salvation have to do with behavior. He wants us to understand that the laws of the Mosaic Covenant were given to a redeemed people that they were given to people who had already come to faith in Yahweh. They had already come to believe in the Lord God. That those laws were given not to get them saved, 
but they were given to teach them how to live that they might be a witness to the rest of the world. And the same is true under the new covenant. The laws that God gives his people today are not given to get us saved, but to allow us to enjoy the blessings of salvation and to become the person that God created us to be, to be a witness to a lost world. Now look at the word of explanation in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If you have to obey the Mosaic law, Paul is saying, to become an heir of righteousness, then faith is, is made void, the promise is nullified. Literally, it's been destroyed. Paul is saying you cannot have it both ways because something cannot be given and earned at the same time. Promises are given, received by faith. But precepts are to be obeyed after you have exercised faith. And so Paul is saying, listen, if God made an unconditional promise to Abraham and he did, then he could not at the same time add conditions to it. Law language like you shall and you shall not demands our obedience. But promise language demands our faith. Obey this commandment and I will bless you. That's law language. But God says to Abraham, I promise to bless you, so believe my promise. And then after you believe, obey. For the law, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. Now, this is a favorite verse used by liberals to take the Bible out of context to make it say something it does not. There are liberal Protestants who say that Jesus is not the only way to God. And this is one of the popular verses that they use. That people who have no law, no Bible, are therefore not under the wrath of God because they don't know any better and therefore they have not violated God's statutes. You know it cannot mean that because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And Paul has already taught in Romans 2, 12 to 15, that Gentiles who have never had a Bible, who do not have the law, have the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience alternately accusing or defending them. That while they may not have a written Bible, they have God's law written into their hearts. He's just trying to make a very simple point here. He's reminding us that the law does not save. The only thing the law does is it brings wrath. When you broke the commandments of God, you saw that you were guilty, that you are worthy of God's wrath. He's already said that in Romans 3, for through the law comes the knowledge, the awareness of sin. And so we've already discussed in our series of Ro in Romans through Paul that the law was not given to save, the, uh, the law was not given to save. It was given to, to show us what sinners we were. The law was not given to uh, so that if we obey it, we can be made right. It was to show us how wrong we were. It's like a mirror. You look in a physical mirror, you see your face is dirty. You look into God's mirror, you see your soul is dirty. One reveals the outside, the other reveals the inside. It was not given to redeem you, it was given to reveal you. And so Luther said it so well when he said the function of the law is not to justify but to terrify and to lead you to faith in Christ. To listen again to today's message, part two of The Religion That Gods Hates, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM19. Don't forget Dr. Brogy is planning his next trip to Israel in May of 2022, and he wants you to come along. This will be an excellent opportunity to not only see and hear the sights and sounds of the Holy Land, but to have the scriptures come alive as Pastor Carl teaches unique messages intended to accompany your various travels. Find out more at stsisraeltour.com, but act quickly because the deadline to sign up is February 11th. The Search the Scriptures trip to Israel is paid for and made possible by only those who choose to travel. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the religion that God hates. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.